I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Those are the first three verses of Psalm 18, the first 20 verses of which are the psalms appointed for today, Thursday, April the 28th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. I appreciate it. Um, we're continuing our look at the book of Daniel, beginning in chapter 2 today, verses 31 to 49. The gospel, we move over to Luke's gospel today, so it's Luke 3, 1 to 14, and then the epistle is the first letter of John, chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. A lot of material to cover today. So remember yesterday, Daniel had gotten a word from the Lord and, and had gone before the king and said, I can make this dream and its interpretation known to you because my God's revealed it to you so that you can know the dream and the thoughts of your mind. But, but he was very clear to say, God gave you the dream. He's speaking to you, Nebuchadnezzar, you king of Babylon, and he revealed it to me. It's not me. It's not my cleverness. It's because the Lord, the same Lord who revealed it to you, revealed the meaning to me. So he says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold. Its chest and arms were of silver. Its middle and thighs were of bronze. So these are less valuable things as we go down the, the body. Its legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. And that's how we get the end of the um, Lord's Prayer, actually, is from that passage right there, that little bit. But, but he's very clear that the kingdom you have was not because of anything you did. It was a kingdom God gave you, the God of heaven, the one that I told you revealed this dream to you. That God is the one who gave you this. And into whose hand he, the God of heaven, has given wherever they dwell the children of men, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you ruler of them all. In other words, his kingdom was stretched from sea to sea and shore to shore and included everything in those kingdoms. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, which doesn't comport very well with the way, remember the way the Chaldeans um, approached Nebuchadnezzar? O king, live forever. So what Daniel says is, is that I'm not going to flatter you by saying that you'll live forever. And I'm telling you, there's going to be a kingdom come after you. may not be pleasant for you to hear, but it's true. So another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks into pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. 
but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with a soft clay. So he's telling him about what's to come in the future, and God's showing Nebuchadnezzar that other kingdoms will arise, but, but there's never going to be anything quite like Babylon. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron doesn't mix with clay. So there'll be a relationship there between two kingdoms, as it were, that that can be strong, but it can also be weak at the same time. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And this is the kingdom of God. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. So what he's saying is is that, that I'm positive that everything I just told you is right, including the interpretation. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and and incense be offered up to him as though he were a god. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is, god is God of gods and Lord of kings. So remember, Daniel had said that you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the king of kings. In other words, nothing is higher than you. But here, Nebuchadnezzar has said that your God is the Lord of kings. So he's above me and a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, and made him rule over the whole province of Babylon, and chief prefect over the wise men of Babylon. So just like Joseph was in the book of Genesis, so now Daniel is raised up to lead the entire kingdom. But not only that, he is elevated above those teachers of his, the Chaldeans, he's elevated above them because he has proven that his wisdom exceeds their wisdom. But he's been very clear where he gets that wisdom, and that's from God. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. So, in other words, um, Daniel's in charge of all things, and then these three companions will be under him and administering the affairs of of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. So they would would go out into the field and they would oversee things, but Daniel stayed there in the court of the king. Now, like I said, we transition over to Luke's gospel here, having finished Jesus's high priestly prayer on the night of his trial, as they, before they came out of the upper room. Uh, So today what we've done is we've shifted over and we're going to look at John the Baptist. Um, We're going to begin here in the third chapter, verses 1 to 14. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So remember Luke's task that that has been set before him is to give a full account of all the things concerning Jesus. He'll then later give a full account of what went on after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus through the lives of the apostles. So the Acts, that's, that's his point, is to send something 
to Theophilus, which means lover of God, that to show him that, that these are true things. And so the way that he begins that here with John the Baptist is he situates him within the, the world's governance structures and also within Judaism. So it's the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So, okay, so it's 15 years after Tiberius became Caesar. Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Herod was being Tetrarch of Galilee. And then Herod's brother Philip was Tetrarch over here. And Lysanias was Tetrarch over here. And the high priests were these people. It's easy to triangulate this time period. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism for the repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. And this would have been in preparation for, even though John wouldn't have known, known this, it had been preparation for how do we get forgiveness of sins when we don't have a temple where we can offer sacrifices. So John is beginning this New Testament ministry right here in the midst of the Old Testament when the temple's still there. They can go and, and make sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins, not, not baptism or repentance. You, baptism is something you did after you provided your sacrifice. You would, you would go in for baptism. So as it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So John is the forerunner. John is the forerunner that's promised by Isaiah. He's also the forerunner that's promised by Malachi. Jesus tells us um, that that Elijah has already come and he's pointing to John when he's speaking, that Elijah has already come. And so so John's job is the one who is forerunner of Messiah, the one who is preparing the way for the Messiah to come. John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In, in other words, don't make this a vain thing. Don't make it a thing where you're just coming out to make a show and do the thing, the religious thing. No, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Let's see amendment of life for the sins that you've confessed when you come out here. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Don't go there with me, he says. Don't even start with that nonsense, because your plea and your uh, plea of innocence can't go back to Abraham. That's not what it is. God doesn't want just just random children of Abraham. He says, I tell you, God's able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. And, and the point of that is to say, then be like Abraham. Don't just say you're like it, you're children of Abraham. No, there's more to it than that. And that sort of presages the, the um, conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus about being born again. Nicodemus, as all Jews, um, believe that because they're children of Abraham, they were born lucky, and, and they get all the benefits that Abraham won for them. We've been born again lucky because God chose to give us the Holy Spirit so that we could be born again and receive all the things that Jesus earned. But it's, it's a necessity to be born again, and it's also, as John says, a necessity to see fruits in keeping with repentance, a changed and amended life. He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Which is exactly what the crowds asked Peter on the day of Pentecost. 
when he calls them and says, be baptized and believe. And John answered them, whoever has two tunics to share is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. And notice, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, to the extent that you've got something your neighbor needs, give it to him. So loving your neighbor is extending yourself on behalf of that neighbor. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? In our situation in life, what do we do? What would it look like to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? So to the first group, he has said, love one another and truly love one another. Provide whatever you can for for one in need. And to the tax collectors, he says, collect no more than you're authorized to do. In other words, what they did was they would put in a bid. They would say, okay, so we have out for bid today. We have the, uh, the tax revenues for the region of Galilee, let's say. And so people would come together and they would say, okay, I'm going to bid X amount. I think this is how much can be collected in taxes from uh, that region. And so the highest bidder would get it. And then they would pay in advance. They would pay that to Rome. And then they would go out and and whatever the, the cost of that bid was, so there would be a profit margin built into it and say, okay, so if you say it's worth that much, then give us this, and then the rest is your salary, essentially, for collecting that. And then they would undervalue it on the beginning, on the front end to Rome, and then overvalue it when they were collecting taxes on it. In the book that the movie Christmas Story is based on, one of the things they, that the writer Gene Shepard talks about there is, is that they used to have sort of personal property taxes. Now, we, we pay personal property taxes over here in North Carolina, but it's largely on vehicles. Um, there, in, in that time, before, around the de- time of the Depression, in that part of Indiana at least, that everything was taxable. So tax people would come to your house, and they would go through your house, and they would value the stuff in your house. And, and there was a negotiation that went on that said, is that a new rug? No, that's not a new rug. Come on, look at that old thing. And so you're trying to devalue it, so you're paying less taxes on it, and the tax collector is trying to get to some real value. Well, in, in Roman times, in this part of the world, there was an incentive to—I mean, there's a profit motive in, hey, if I can collect more than I paid to Rome— then I'm, that's gravy. And so, and they had almost complete autonomy. There was almost no procedure there to appeal a decision made by the tax collector. So they said, collect no more than you're authorized to do. And the soldiers asked, and we, what shall we do? And they were the police. They were the police force of the Roman Empire when they were stationed out here in these hinterlands. He said to them, don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. So what you get paid should be enough. There's, there's no reason for you to extort it from other people. And so he's given them practical advice on how to live. Now, it was going to affect them, right? It's going to affect their pocketbook in both cases, the tax collectors and the soldiers. It's going to change their way of life. But John says doesn't matter. Those are sinful behaviors that you're engaged in, and that would be what it looks like to repent of sins in your uh, position. In the epistle today, John is speaking to all of them here. Remember yesterday he spoke to little children, uh, fathers, and then young men. Today he's just going to begin with that children. He's speaking to all of them here. It's the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. So because these we, we've, we've believed 
that there would antichrists would come, those who would challenge the authority of Christ or exalt themselves to be in his position. He said those were going to come in the last days, and we know it's the last hour because they've come. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. In other words, they got frustrated and they left. And then they took whoever would go with them. But they went out that it might become plain that they're not of us. In other words, what he's saying is, is that don't grieve these people leaving. It was actually necessary that they leave because they were mixing the gospel with Gnosticism. And they were then taking it in a wrong direction. Whenever you mix the gospel with something, the trajectory of the gospel and its impact in your life is changed. Whenever you add something to the gospel, then the trajectory of your life moves away from what is true to what is false. That's just the way it goes. And he said it's a good thing they're gone. Because they were causing bigger problems than you even realize. They weren't just causing dissensions among you. They were spreading lies and falsehoods, and they were leading people astray. And so it's good that they're gone because it shows that they're not the same as us. He says, but you've been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. It's an important thing for John to say to this group, because these docetists, the Gnostics, who have been among them, Gnosticism just simply means wisdom. And it's a wisdom from above that they're claiming that they got through different revelation and inspiration that, that these guys haven't received. And so they're imparting knowledge to them that's been imparted to them by God, but it doesn't line up with the Word of God. And that's the problem. We have that in this church today. Oh, that's a different time. And you know that how? You know that God's Word has been superseded by the spirit of the age. How do you know that? Well, I I don't have the ability and the authority to throw away Scripture, so I think I'm going to set myself by that pole rather than the spirit of the age, which seems to be your motivation. So here, John's assuring them, you have all the knowledge you need. Those people don't have—if they have some sort of special revelation and inspiration, it didn't come from God. And he's assuring them that they have knowledge, because these Gnostics who would have come in would have been relying on their superior knowledge that hadn't been given to these people. It was a new revelation. He says, I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So all the things that you saw in them that they tried to tell you and convince you of that you knew wasn't right, then that lie is not of the truth. So you can figure out where it comes from from there. Jesus says that Satan's the father of lies. Who's the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? And they would have denied it because they they would have said that the Christ doesn't die, and therefore that's where they come up with that, that shifty kind of story about Simon's spirit jumping into the Jesus body and the Jesus spirit jumping into the Simon body, and so it wasn't actually Jesus who was crucified. It was only Simon of Cyrene in the Jesus body that was crucified. And so he's he's he, he is no longer really the Christ because he wasn't crucified. John's very clear about that. The liar is the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ, so this is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And that's Jesus' prayer, the high priestly prayer that we've been reading. Remember, Jesus was very, very clear that you needed to believe in him 
and that he had been sent by the Father, and that they were then one. So if you have one, you have both. If you, have, if you don't have one, you don't have either. <clears throat> Let's, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So if you believe the truth, then you have the Son and the Father, and you're abiding in them because the, the Word is truth. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. What is the anointing that they receive from him that abides in them so that they don't need anybody to teach them? It's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit bears witness when we hear teaching. The Holy Spirit will bear witness to us about the truth of what's being taught. And so John says, you don't really need anybody to teach you because you have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is intended to teach you and lead you into all truth which is exactly what Jesus said. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, his anointing being the Holy Spirit, (coughs) that teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you abide in him, it being the anointing, it being the Holy Spirit. And so he says, stay in those things, in those truths that you've been taught by us and through that anointing. Abide in those things. He said, and now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming, because we've misunderstood him or misrepresented him. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So, in other words, what what he's saying is a corrective to the idea that what you do in the body doesn't matter. That Jesus' righteousness matters. That he lived a sinless life, John says, matters. If you believe that he is righteous, if you know that he's righteous, righteous would be without sin in every single way. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. In other words, the more you practice righteousness, the more you prove that you have been born again and born into Jesus. So what they're trying to teach you is it doesn't matter what you do is a lie from the pit of hell, and it does matter what you do, just as it mattered what he did, and that he carried it all the way through to the cross, the grave, and the resurrection. It's important that we accept all those things as true, because that's where the joy is. The fact that those things are true should bring us more joy than anything else we might know or hear on the earth. And anybody who denies those things, he says, or teaches you to deny those things, steals your joy, and he steals your salvation ultimately.